0: So we're looking today at Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 28. Acts 10:28. And he said to them, "You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean." So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent me and Cornelius said four days ago about this hour I was praying in my house at the ninth hour and behold a man stood before me in bright clothing and said Cornelius your prayer has been heard and your arms have been remembered before God send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea so I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name.
1: Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. It's really good to be moving through the book of Acts with you all. And, um, and so good to hear from you guys, Brad and Cass, just about uh, your mission and uh, how exciting that is. Uh, and also, if you are new to church, just so you know, the only valid reason for leaving is to reach an unreached people group. That's the only reason people go from here, so just as a heads up. Um, but we are we're ending the, the second, well as Jacob was saying, half, but not half of the book of Acts. But the reason you could call it kind of like a halfway point is that the passage that we're in today is a hinge point in the book of Acts. But up until now, the gospel has been largely centrally located around a place called Jerusalem and in and around those areas, and it started to break into different people groups. But here's the turning point where for the first time, it goes to non-Jewish people, what they call Gentiles, in the book of Acts. And from here on, the word of God, the gospel, the message about Jesus is going to continue to break new boundaries and grounds and explode all through the Roman Empire. And the reason this matters and the reason we're doing this on Halfway Sunday is to just realign our lives with God's Word and the calling that if you know Jesus and if you know the Gospel, that you yourself are a missionary. I started the year with this illustration earlier in our series right at the beginning of February of a missionary who wanted to reach unreached people who had actually in fact sold up everything to go overseas to reach an unreached people group. And because he was going as a vocational missionary to a closed country, the only way he could get into that country was to have some kind of business that he was operating, to have a working visa that he was on. And so part of that mission was to actually create a business and that that would actually help people in terms of you know, local employment, but also it would give him a reason to actually be there. But the main point was to make disciples. And I shared with you that over time, so much of his time went into the business and into making that a success and into expanding that business, that eventually the mission was forgotten. And it sort of became a cautionary tale among vocational missionaries, to be like, there need to be reasons and limits on the business work that we're doing so that the mission doesn't get forgotten. Now, why do I tell that illustration again? Is it because I've run out of opening illustrations? It's gonna be a long next decade, if that's the case. I tell it because the point of that story is that the natural gradient of the Christian life is towards mission drift. And in that case, it's particularly stark because you think, man, how could a missionary go to a foreign context, leave everything that they were living, everything that was familiar and every comfort, and go overseas and still somehow forget the mission? When we see that, we think, that's crazy. But when it happens here in Sydney, we're like, well, that's normal. It's normal to go your entire life, to build up assets, and to build things and to have stuff and to accumulate comforts and to at the end of our lives make no disciples and that's normal but biblically it's not normal and so the reason that we do these vision series is not to have some kind of a i don't know corporate churchy vision but to realign ourselves with scripture that in acts 10 the gospel is going out to the nations and God's people everyone who follows Jesus who knows the gospel is called to go and tell the gospel Every Christian is a missionary. Every disciple is a disciple maker. If you know the gospel, it is incumbent on you to proclaim the gospel. And here we're going to see that Peter goes and tells. That a missionary is someone who just goes to people and tells them about Jesus. And we're going to see in this passage that it's the Spirit that empowers this mission the whole time. So I'm going to pray that God will be working through us. Let's pray together. Father, we pray knowing that our hearts are prone to wander and our minds are prone to forget the reality of the gospel, that there is one way to know life and life forever, and that's through Jesus Christ, that there is one salvation, there is one God and Savior, and there is one cross through, whom we might, through which we might find forgiveness. And so, Father, we just pray this morning that you put in our hearts a deep love for you and a love for others that would move us to want to share the gospel and to see you at work in this city. And not just in this city, but all over the world. And so, Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, in Acts 10.1, the story opens like this, and there'll be some unfamiliar names and places, but we'll get into that. But it starts with the story going this way. In Acts ten one, we read, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. At about the ninth hour, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he started at him in, it stared at him in terror, and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms. Have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So the scene opens in a place called Caesarea, that presumably is not that familiar to anyone here. It was the administrative centre of an area called Judea. And remember, if you're with us at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus said to his disciples, This gospel will go out from Jerusalem. To Judea to Samaria the surrounding region beyond that and then to the ends of the earth and here they're in Caesarea and it was a harbor city and it was made a great city by Herod the Great and it was a largely Gentile city which again just means non-Jewish people so the large percentage of the population were not Jewish by here we meet a man called Cornelius who's a centurion now Cornelius as a centurion, as a warrior, I know his name makes him sound more like a librarian than a warrior, but as a centurion, he was in charge of a hundred soldiers. And we're told here he was part of the Italian cohort, so a hundred soldiers was, was one century of them, that's the kind of the correlation. Then they'd be a part of a cohort of 600, which was a part of a legion of 6,000. So this is kind of how the Roman army was organized. And we're told here that he's a centurion which means his rank wasn't super high. It's kind of like a modern-day NCO, a non-commissioned officer, so kind of like a sergeant-type rank. So it wasn't all the way at the top, but he had some power and authority. And here, we're told that he was a God-fearer. That is, he was praying to God. Now, that means something very specific here. It wasn't just that he was praying sincerely to his own God or that God was respecting the fact that he was being very sincere within his own religion. That's not the case. What this means in the book of Acts is that he knew of the God of the Bible, but he hadn't converted to Judaism. That is, he didn't follow a lot of the traditions and practices, but he worshipped the God of the Bible, the true God. And we're told that he was a devout man, he and all his household. And Luke, in this passage, calls him a prayer warrior. And he says at the ninth hour, he is praying. So that's about 3 p.m. on our clocks. He's praying. And an angel of the Lord appears before him and addresses him. And even as a centurion who had seen potentially war or at the very least violence, someone who was trained as an, as an army officer, he in this moment is terrified when confronted by an angel of the Lord. We're told that he's frightened. He stares at him in horror. And the angel addresses him and says to him, Look, your, your prayers... And the way that you've been serving God by giving alms to the poor have been answered. And he tells him to go and find this Simon who is Peter, who's with another Simon. So you have to be very specific, because there's a lot of Simons, there's a lot of Corneliuses. But here he says, go and find him very specifically in this place at this time. And so he's told that this is, that Peter's in Joppa, and so because he has charge of people under him, he sends them out to Joppa. And the distance between Caesarea and Joppa is about 50 kilometers, so kind of sort of from here to Gosford, or for something a bit more tangible, from here to the nearest Red Rooster. There's one in Ashfield, actually. But then beyond that, it's another 50 Ks. But he sends the men out, which is maybe two to three days' journey, to go and see him. And then we pick up the story on the other side of this story, as God is bringing these two groups of people together, and these two men in particular together. We pick up the story on the other side with Peter. Come with me to Acts 10, 9 to 16. It says, The next day, as they're on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So remember, this all started the day before at 3 p.m. So you can imagine that Cornelius was praying at 3 p.m. on a Monday. Now we're fast forwarding to Tuesday in the middle of the day. And Peter's going up to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And saw the heavens open up, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals, and reptiles, and birds of the air. And there a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. So the same thing, three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So as a soldier and his servants are sort of making their way over to Joppa, where Peter is, so as the people that Cornelius has sent over are making their way, at that time, while that's happening, Peter sees this vision. A sheet comes down, and it's got all birds, animals, all reptiles, all different types. And God speaks and says to Peter, rise, Peter, and eat. And Peter says, I've never eaten this stuff the voice says, well, God has made clean, do not, make, do not call common. What's happening here? Why is Peter so averse to eating these animals? Is it because he's vegan? No, we know that because he would have told us several times by now. <laughs> Thank you. It's an easy one to score points off. He, he hasn't eaten any of these things because he's held to the traditions in the Scriptures. They had rules about what they were allowed to eat and not eat. In fact, they had more than just things about what they would eat. There were all kinds of customs and traditions that God had set for his people to set them apart from the nations around them. See, in the Old Testament, before Jesus, God's people were to be distinct, holy, set apart. And the mission at that point was that as Israel lived under the good lordship of God, that they would live differently to the nations around them that they would do justice differently, that they do their culture differently, the way they ate and dressed, everything would be to distinguish them from the nations that were around them. And the plan was that over time, as they lived faithfully to God, the nations would come to them. And we see this in the Old Testament. The nations start to come to them and see, wow, everything here is so different. The way you live is so different. There must be a God in heaven who is to be worshipped. But here in the New Testament, the mission shifts. When Jesus arrives, instead of drawing all the nations to Israel, he's going to send them out. And Jesus prophesied about what was happening here with Peter during his earthly ministry. Come with me to Mark chapter 7, 15-21. He says here, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus says, it's actually out of the heart that sin comes. And so here, he's not saying, stop press, you've been doing it all wrong. No, he's just saying, look, the whole time, sin was really a matter of the heart. These things that the, the God's people were called to do, were meant to set them apart from the people around them, and to draw the nations to them. But now, Jesus is about to send his people out. Instead of the nations coming to them, they're going to go to the nations and when he finishes in the Gospel of Matthew, he finishes with a great commission and says, go therefore to all the nations, make disciples of them, baptize them, teach them everything that I've taught you. This is how the mission shifts. And so this is why Peter is being sent to this Gentile household. And while he's having this vision, at the end of it, he's not still not quite sure what's going on. But the messages from Cornelius eventually arrive, and Peter goes with them to Cornelius' house in, in, in uh, Caesarea. And we're going to pick up the story from when he arrives there. Look what it says in Acts ten, twenty-seven to 45. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, this is Peter talking, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people, And to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. See, Peter now knows... This gospel, though he's heard it before, that Jesus told him many, many times that this is now going to go out to the nations. To so one after another after another. That this message is for all people. He says it there. He says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I, sent for, when I was sent for, I came without objection. Here... The cultural boundaries between Israel and the nations around them are being broken down as the gospel goes out to the nations. And Peter says, that's why I came. God had made it clear to me that this was the case because previous to this, it would have been unlawful for him to even associate with them. And now he's entering their house, proclaiming the gospel to them and as witness to the fact that the salvation has reached these people, the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they too worship the same God. The gospel is going out to these nations. The cultural barriers that were stuck between them have now been broken down that the gospel may go over all cultural barriers. And because of this, God's people are called to go. To go to the nations and reach those cultures where they are. Because things like language and styles of culture or eating are no longer a barrier. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to to China around the turn of the 20th century. And one of the things that seemed at the time radical about the way he went about mission was that he fully adopted, in terms of outward appearance, the culture that he was going to. For the part of China that he went to, he learned the language of the people, he dressed like the people, and he ate like the people. And the reason this was significant is that where he succeeded was where many other missionaries had failed. That many other missionaries at that time believed that before someone, ne- before someone became a Christian, They needed to be quote-unquote civilized. And for British missionaries at the time, what that meant was they needed to learn English, they needed to dress like British people, and they needed to learn the culture. That all of this had to happen before someone could receive the gospel and then respond in faith. But many of the missionaries like Hudson Taylor and others like him knew that these cultural barriers were just part of their culture. They weren't fused to the gospel in any way. That he was free to go and to dress as they dress, to speak as they speak, and to reach them with the gospel. Now this didn't mean that you adopt everything that a culture does. And in fact, when we get to Acts chapter 15, we're going to see some of the things that that this kind of presses up against as the gospel reaches different cultures. That there are some things that are a matter of false worship or sin that Christians aren't allowed to participate in. You can't be in every way like the culture you're going to reach. But here we see there is a radical breaking down of cultural boundaries. And it's for this reason that Christianity, like no other major world religion, has been the one to cross more language and cultural barriers than any other. And that the center of Christianity has shifted multiple times over history, whereas for all of the other major world religions, their center from the start has remained their center until today. The gospel goes out to the nations. And God goes to great lengths to show Peter that this is what he desires. That's why he shows him this vision and then does it three times. He goes to great lengths to say that, look, no matter what your race, background, ethnicity, culture, whatever, all people now have access to God through the gospel. The gospel is for all nations and all people. And so now God's people are called to go and tell the gospel that they may hear and repent. That people may receive forgiveness of sins, that they may be made new, that they might be adopted into God's family. See, the gospel is for everyone, and we, as followers of Christ, are called to go and tell all people. But see, for Peter in this passage, it was obvious where it was that he was called to go and who it was that he was called to tell. This is a very specific. This is if God were to micromanage the global mission, it would take a long time. Having these corresponding visions, go to this guy's house, tell these people, so on and so forth. But here, it's very specific for Peter. The question is: If you are here and a follower of Jesus today, what does it mean for you to go? If you're a believer in Jesus, if you know the gospel, you are a missionary and you're called to go. What does it look like to go? What does it look like to be a missionary? I reckon for many, even here today, you might even be thinking, gosh, like, I've already got so many things on, and now I've got to add, like, missionary to my portfolio as well. And for one thing, it's worth saying that if we are followers of Christ, if you are a Christian, you are a missionary. But it means not just adding new things to your calendar, but actually seeing all of life as a missionary. So when you tend to think of a missionary, you do. You think of like the Edwards going overseas and going full-time on mission. But it's also the case that many people go into cultures as vocational missionaries. That is, they're working full-time, just like you might be, and looking to make disciples in that culture. So what does it look like to think like a missionary? We can think of it even simply in these kind of four areas. There are four things that we are already doing. that, That thinking like a missionary just means rethinking these ideas with that lens. And that's work, eating, recreating, and celebrating. See, how do you think about your work? Is work just a place where you make money? Do you see yourself as a missionary sent to your workplace? In fact, how would it change your perspective on your work to see yourself as a missionary sent into your workplace? To know that when I go there, I'm meant to approach work with a biblical framework, knowing that work is good, I'm called to carry out my work with faithfulness and integrity. But I'm also there to love and to serve people. I'm not there to trample others for my own career prospects. I'm not there just to speak to people who are influential or who could further my career. I go as an emissary of Jesus to love like he loved. And this might mean small things. It might mean things like, well, every workplace has a struggler. And if you can't think of one, it might be you. But oftentimes there is someone in the workplace that people deliberately or indeliberately avoid because they're either a low-status person, that's the person that doesn't further my career, or they make things difficult, or whatever it is. If you're a Christian, that is not the framework to enter the workplace in. To say everyone here is made in the image of God, and I'm called to love and to serve people. And maybe it means even loving and serving that most difficult person in the workplace. Maybe it's different. Maybe it means you'll take or even deny other promotions because you're like no this is where God has got me serving or, I've made great relationships and connections with people that aren't just in our work but outside our work and I'm going to I'm going to forego a career opportunity so that I can love and serve and make disciples more effectively where I am it might be the case that in f- instead of working from home every day of the week that you take the opportunity to go into the office because that's where connections are actually made and when there is kind of some level of community that forms within the workplace, whatever it is, do you see your work as a missionary? Do you work like a missionary? Or with eating, do you eat like a missionary? And when you hear that phrase, do you think like, what, is that just like you have wheat bix for every meal or something? Like, what? what does that actually look like? But think about how many meals you have in a month. There's a lot of them, right? Do you think about the things that you're already doing which is eating and you have to, do you think about that like a missionary? Who might I have round for dinner? Can I take extra food into work to actually share it? Are you committing actually to eating with others in your workplace rather than eating alone at your desk? In the first year of City Light, I was working part-time as a, a scripture teacher over at a school uh, over on the North Shore. And when I, when I went into the school, I was given an office by myself. So I was the only person in, it was like a, it wasn't quite a cupboard, but it was just a small space. And I don't know if they thought that was a favor for me or if they're like, look, we don't really know where to put you. So maybe just over there is where you go. But um, but as an introvert, I can tell you, I was like, oh no, what am I going to do with all that peace and quiet and alone time? But I did also realize that if I wasn't intentional about it, that I could spend a full year at that school and not know a single other teacher. And so what I did was uh, for a lot of the classes, for prizes, I'd take in, I don't know, lollies, those kind of things, incentives, bribes, whatever you want to call them, and, uh, and I'd get extra so that I could go around to the staff rooms to offer those up to others later and actually meet some of the teachers from other staff rooms. Or it was to take food in knowing that I'd have to cook it in the, in the common room, meaning that you have to sit there and actually connect with other people as well. It's just small ways we can start to think about the things that we're already doing, but like a missionary with missional intentionality. What about with recreation? This is stuff that you're already doing and already like doing. If you run alone, maybe join a group. If you're in a a football team that's only got other Christians in it, maybe to join one that doesn't. Whether it's you go to the gym alone or you work out alone, maybe actually joining a group. All these things, it's just starting to think, look, how could I do what I'm already doing in a way that's going to connect with others on a regular basis? And that's recreation, but what about celebrating? There are things that we already do just week in and week out. There are celebrations that our city participates in that you two are called to be a part of. Birthdays, weddings, Christmases, public holidays, these are already things that are going on. There are already things that you're doing. Are there ways you could be doing it more intentionally to go to the city? Because this is what it looks like to go. Jesus calls us to go. But with that, he calls us not just to go, but also to tell. Because it could be the case that you could fully connect with people in this city, that you could have large networks of friends where you are in their life and they're in yours and you're doing life together, and yet to live your life entirely almost as like a sleeper agent undercover for Jesus. Jesus but successfully never blow your cover before Jesus calls you home. Now in this passage we see that Peter goes and he tells. That in order for someone to come to faith in, in God, they have to hear the gospel and someone has to tell it. See, why is it, if we have such good news, why is it we're so often hesitant to tell other people about it? I think it's because we can forget how good this news is. And you can, you can, I think, naturally just get into the mindset of like, this is kind of good news for me, but not necessarily for all people. And it kind of becomes like a, a private habit, like adult magic or something like that, where you're like, I'm really into this, but is anyone into that? Sorry, if that, I just had to pick something out of the air for that one. But it's kind of, kind of like a hobby where you're like, I know that I enjoy this sort of thing, but it's kind of like an eccentric interest rather than something that everyone else is going to be amongst. But we forget that the gospel is for all, that Jesus died for all, that his blood covers all sin, and that it doesn't matter what your background is or where you're from, this gospel is for you. And not only that, but we forget that actually the gospel answers the deepest longings of our heart and the deepest longings of the people in our city. In his book, How to Reach the West Again, the late Timothy Keller gives us a sample of some of the things that the gospel brings that people are already looking for. It brings a meaning in life that suffering can't take away, but can even deepen. It brings a satisfaction that is not based just on our circumstances. It brings a freedom that doesn't reduce community and relationships to really thin transactions. It brings an identity that isn't fragile or based on our performance or the exclusion of others. It brings a way to deal with both guilt and forgive others without residual bitterness or shame. It brings a basis for seeking justice that doesn't turn us into oppressors ourselves. It brings a way to face not only the future but death itself with poise and peace. It brings an explanation for the senses of transcendent beauty that we love and often experience. All of this can only be found in the gospel. And we forget that we have this treasure in jars of clay. That this is the truth. This is what people are longing for. Why would we hide it? We must go and we must tell. And so what do we do with this? Well, if you're here this morning and unsure about Christianity or where you stand, do any of those things, as I just read them out, connect with you? Is this not what you're looking for? A meaning in life that suffering can't take away? A freedom And a sense of community that isn't just paper thin or about associations. An identity that isn't fragile or based on your performance or what other people think of you. A way to face the future, not just the future, but even death itself with poise and peace. This is the claim of the gospel. That these answers alone can be found in Jesus. And that Jesus is for you. That it's not based on your performance or anything you've done or cleaning up your act. But if you know Jesus and trust in him, all of this is yours. Do not take the time to investigate whether or not this is true. We'd love to help you with that. And if that's something that you want to do, to put that on the slips later on so that we can talk with you and pray with you and show you what it means to to understand the gospel and to follow Jesus and to experience all that comes with knowing him. And if you're a believer, let me ask you the question that we started with right at the beginning of the year. And I'm not that clear a preacher, so there's no way you're going to remember it anyway. But if you've never had a friend or family member come to Christ, what are you planning to do differently this year to see someone come to know him for the first time? What is it that maybe needs to change? For you, is it the case that maybe you've followed Jesus for a long time? That's kind of now at the point where you're like, if I'm honest, I don't really have any connections to people who don't share my same faith, that actually the next step for you actually is to go and to to meet and to know people who who don't know Jesus and to actually be in real relationship with them. Well, maybe it's the case that you're like, actually, I do. I'm really connected. But at the moment, I mean, most people don't even know that I'm a Christian, let alone have heard the gospel. Actually, maybe it's a matter of that I actually need to tell some others. And if that's the case... Can I put to you this that over this term, you might, with the small group that you're connected here, pray that this would be the term that you share the gospel with someone else? In a couple of months' time, we have a series called More to Life coming up. And so that begins in October, middle of October, which is a fair way away. So it gives us a fair amount of time between now and then. And that series is just answering three questions over three weeks Is there more to life than a good time? Is there more to life than wealth? And is there more to life than finding the one? And these are questions that people are already asking in our city, and we know it. And it's a chance to hear the gospel, and off the back of that will be our second Alpha of the year. Now, this first Alpha that we've just had has been so much fun to do. And most of the people who actually were a part of that Alpha have continued on to Christianity Explored, which is looking into the gospel of Mark. It's been such an encouragement to see people diving deeper into the questions of the gospel and to faith. But our hope is that our next Alpha will be the biggest one yet. And the reason for that is we ran this one at the beginning of winter. That is not primed. Monday, cold Monday night is not the prime time to be like, I'm already not that sure if I want to be checking out this gospel thing anyway. But, you know, anyway, it's not not the best time to do it. And yet, we've seen God work through it powerfully. And so we'd love to see our next one just pack out the building up there. And we want to do that not just because we want packed buildings because that means people investigating faith for themselves and in order for that to happen, it would mean us as a church community going and telling others and sharing our lives and faith with them in order to see them become curious about this gospel that saves lives. And so my prayer is it will be of people who have a conviction that if we know the gospel, that we too are called as missionaries, and to know that just like Peter, that there are Cornelius's out there you probably won't meet an actual Cornelius maybe. But Cornelius is out there who are waiting to hear the gospel. People are longing for deep answers to deep questions. Who want to hear real answers. Let me finish with this story that Hudson Taylor shares in his autobiography, the missionary I mentioned earlier. He says this, On one occasion I was preaching the good news of salvation through the finished work of Christ when a middle-aged man stood up and testified before his assembled countrymen to his faith in the power of the gospel. And he's quoting him now. I have long sought for the truth, he said earnestly, as my father did before me, but I have never found it. I have travelled far and near, but without obtaining it. I have found no rest in Confucianism or Buddhism or Taoism, but I do find rest in what I have heard here tonight. Henceforth, I am a believer in Jesus. This man was one of the leading officers of a sect of Reformed Buddhists in Ningpo. A short time after his confession of faith in the Saviour, there was a meeting of the sect over which he had formerly presided. I accompanied him to that meeting there, and and sorry, to that meeting, and there, to his former peers, he testified of the peace that he had found in believing. Soon after one of his former companions was converted and baptized. Both are now asleep in Jesus. A few nights after his conversion, he asked how long this gospel had been known in England, and he was told that we had known it for some hundreds of years. What, he said amazed, is it possible that for hundreds of years you have had the knowledge of these glad tidings in your possession, and have yet only now come to preach it to us? My father sought after the truth for more than 20 years and died without finding it. Why did you not come sooner? You may not find yourself on the other side of the world preaching the gospel, but you may. But how many of our friends and family might say to us, how long have you known this gospel? When we encourage one another to trust in Christ that there are many waiting to hear this gospel. And then we might be bold in proclaiming it, knowing that there is no other name by which people may be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we just praise you that you are a missionary God. That you didn't wait for us to seek you out. That you came and sought us out in our sin and rejection of you. That you sent Christ as a sacrifice for our sin. That you came and loved us. That you drew us back to yourself. And that you have done everything necessary to take away our sin, to renew us and restore us into your your family as a father we pray that by your spirit you would embolden us to be your people to trust you that you are good and that you are at work in this city that you go before us we pray that as some go out from our family to reach people across the world we would be supporting and upholding them and that as we go out to reach people in this city we would do it in a manner that honors jesus we would love and serve as he loved and served, knowing that there is salvation in no one else. And Father, we pray these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.